So uh, we are in John chapter 4, and the story uh, that's well known for mo- many of us who grew up in the church, uh, the story of Jesus interacting with this woman at a well in a place called Samaria. It tells us in the first few verses that Jesus was compelled to go to Samaria. And John adds that because uh, the normal Jewish route from the south of the country to the north was not through Samaria. That was the Badlands. Uh, The Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles. They were seen as, as less than human by their Jewish counterparts. When you left Samaria, you would shake the dirt from your shoes so that you didn't carry any Samaritan cooties with you on the rest of your journey. But Jesus was compelled by God to go to Samaria, and that's exactly where they went. I'm guessing his, his disciples were kind of like, really? Uh, but they, they did. They walked. They got all the way to this place called Jacob's Well. Uh, as we talked about it a couple weeks ago, uh, Jesus sits down. He's exhausted from the journey. His friends head to Jersey Mike's to pick up the subs because they, you know, used the app, and they, you know, got them all set. Uh, but Jesus just hung out by this well. And of course... The reason for his being in Samaria walked up to the well that day. We don't know her name. She was just a woman. She had no business being at the well, uh, just so we're clear. The ladies would get their water in the morning or at night when it was cooler, but this woman uh, didn't want to be seen, be talked to. She came out at at the hottest moment of the day. And, of course, there's Jesus. I'm guessing the woman had all these preconceived notions when she saw this guy who she didn't know from town, uh, who was probably from another region of, of uh, you know, Israel, and who she didn't assume would want to talk to her at all. Anybody ever had that interaction with someone in public? You're just kind of like, I'm just going to get my water. I'm just going to go home. But is that where Jesus leaves it? No. Jesus knows. This must be why I'm here. Let's talk. Remember the conversation? How's he start? Hey, can I get a drink of water from you? And she says, what? You're talking to me? I mean, she's incredulous. I can't believe you're talking to me. This is so outside the bounds. First of all, you as a Jew shouldn't be talking to a Samaritan. Secondly, you as a man should not be talking to a woman. This is wrong. And so she comes back and says, how are you going to get some water? You don't have anything to draw it with. And he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask me for water, living water, and you'd never thirst again. Who remembers that part? And this kind of opens the conversation. Now she's in. Lots of back and forth. I'm not going to go through the whole sermon. Read it. It's right there. I won't get mad at you. Read it right now if you want. But eventually it ends with this. She's just kind of giving him the Heisman. I don't want to deal with this guy. I shouldn't be talking to you anyway. And she starts lugging her jug back to town. And Jesus says, oh, that's a great idea. Head back to town and call your husband and bring him out and let's all three of us talk. And over her shoulder... I think dismissively, she just says, I have no husband. And Jesus responds to that with, that's right. You've had five, and the dude you're sleeping with now, you're not married to him. And she stops. Because this guy, this stranger, is reading her mail, or maybe more appropriately, her mails, right? (laughs) And talking to her about her life. So she's like, I can see you're a prophet. I can see that you have the power of God in you. Not wanting to talk about her husband's, her sin, she probably uh, redirects and says, let's talk worship. Are we supposed to worship on this hill in Samaria? Are we supposed to worship on the hill that you guys worship in in Jerusalem? Remember what Jesus says? It's not about hills. There will come a time where we will worship, not in locations, but in spirit and in truth. 
It's going to point her. It's not about where you are. It's about who you're worshiping. A little bit later in John 14, Jesus is going to say to his friends as they were fretting their follow. He says to them, listen, guys, you'll know where to go. I am the way. And what's the next one? I am the truth. I am everything about your life that you need to know and make first. Follow me. And so Jesus here in this early conversation in his ministry years says, hey, we're going to worship in spirit, not in places. That's fine, but it's all about spirit, and you're going to be worshiping me, the truth, and the things that I have to tell you. And this, this woman uh, kind of says, yeah, I, I've, 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 you know, from Sunday school growing up, I remember that there's going to be this Messiah that comes, remember? And, and, and she's looking at Jesus, you know, aren't you excited for that day to come? And Jesus, I don't know if he squares her up or just, you know, stares deep into her eyes. But, but she, he says, you're talking to him. That's me. And then what we're going to cover today starts happening. Uh, we're going to see some different reactions to this story from the woman and then from the disciples who had been at Jersey Mike's. Uh, it's going to be a teaching moment for Jesus to share with his friends. What he's going to talk about is something that the woman was struggling with. See, the woman was, was dealing with what all of us as humans deal with. We have preconceived notions, Right? Ideas about how God works, about what he's doing, about where we should worship him. That was her case. I, uh, I, do, I, do, <laughs> I do illustrations for us all the time. Has anybody noticed that I like to, like, you know, throw cups up or, you know, uh, one time I came out in a boat. Was anybody here for the boat day? And it doesn't matter. Anyway, some of them work. I'm going to be honest with you. Some of them work. A lot of them don't. This might be that case, but I, I was falling asleep last night. And I was like, God, give me a way to explain this, and this is what he gave. Did you know that you're most creative right before you fall asleep? You should always keep a pad by your table, just in case you have a great idea. I don't know if this is one of those. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but I brought, not my garbage, these are uh, the compartments that we live in. There's two principal preconceived places or whatever that we kind of live in that kind of function or, or, or shape how we function in life. There's, there's the me side of us. This is what else, is that what it says? Yeah, the me side of us, which is kind of who we are when we're alone. Uh, it's what's going on between our ears. Some of you are alone right now, even though you're surrounded by people. The guy's got a microphone and he's talking to you. You aren't hearing a thing. Because right now in your head, you've insulated everything else that's going on. Maybe you've clued in just now. Welcome. It's good to have you. But you can be surrounded by people and be alone. Isn't that an amazing thing about humanity? Fellas, you know what I'm talking about. She's been talking to you since you got into the house and you haven't heard a thing. And, you're, and as a stupid husband, you say, huh? And she has to repeat everything because you've been in your box. You know what I'm talking about, right? But we live in the me side of us. And then, of course, we have human relationships. We have the we side of us, the me and the we. Is everybody with me so far? And depending on our situation and our location, whether we're alone or with people, whether we're uh, in, a, in a place where uh, you know, certain decorum is required of us or it's not expected of us, depending on the people we're with, whether we're comfortable with them or we're just getting to know them, it shapes how we roll, right? It shapes how we function in life. 
So no wonder this woman walks up to a stranger at the well and she has her initial reaction. She's functioning as a human in her compartments. I just wanted this to be a me exercise, but now apparently it's a we exercise. And she rolls through this thing, not knowing she's talking to the Son of God. And then finally when she realizes who it is that she's speaking to, everything changes. We'll get to that in a second. But we get this. Anybody ever thought it was just a, a me time and you found out it was a we time? And the things that you were doing is just a me time were completely inappropriate in the, in the we time. I got a story. Want to hear it? So I'm driving up to uh, Gainesville to visit with uh, the Wolvertons. If you've been praying for Tobin and Amanda, their son Calhoun, I want to give you just a praise report. Calhoun, uh, this couple months ago, was uh, struck crossing the street in Gainesville by a car. Um, massive brain trauma uh, was the diagnosis. Um, as, as the initial returns were coming, weren't sure if this young man was going to make it. So the initial prayer was, Lord, if it be your will, keep our boy here. He did. And then over the last couple of months, as he's gone through his initial, you know, uh, uh, early days and then has settled into his rehabilitation, God has answered prayer after prayer after prayer. The boy is walking. He's talking. He's moving. <laughs> and if you ask Tobin and Amanda, I don't know if you're here this morning, Tobin, if you ask Tobin and Amanda, is this a hard thing? Yeah. Would they prefer it's not happening? Come on. But is God teaching them? Is he showing up in ways uh, that is amazing them? Yeah. Do we need to keep praying? Absolutely. Pray for a complete restoration to this young man for him to return to classes. Um, but it's a miracle so far. Anyway. I was heading up to Gainesville like so many families did here and from around the country who know Tobin and, and Amanda. And I was just going to go give him a hug and pray for him a little bit and buy him some whatever. So I'm driving up there. But uh, as I'm driving, I was like, you know what I need right now? A Trenta iced coffee from, uh, you know, the, the Starbucks. So I pull in, I grab one of those, and I, I pop it in my gullet. And uh, it sits there for a couple hours. And I don't know what coffee does to you, but especially if I'm sitting down, it, there's some science project going on in here, right? There's some, there's some gas happening. There's some buildup. Are you with me? And don't worry, this is, okay. Anyway, uh, so I park my car, and I'm heading, you know, towards the hospital. It's, it's, it's this sidewalk that is just lined with trees and shrubs, and so I need to burp, okay? And I know the rules for burping. Keep your mouth closed. Say, excuse me. My mom taught me. I'm not an animal. But when you're alone, come on. None of those rules apply. So I'm walking down this road, and I'm like, bug it. I'm going I'm to just let this burp out. And I'm going to tell you right now, has anybody ever been surprised by something that your body was able to do? <laughs> like, I've burped for 52 years. But this burp, I think it's my best one ever. I mean, just, you know, the, the volume, the density, you know what I'm talking about? Could have said like half the alphabet in the time that I was doing it. It just came from my toes. Like I had one of those moments, if, if you've ever been by yourself and something happens like that, you're like, wow. And that's when I turned the corner. And I saw that what I thought was just a regular corner heading to the hospital was actually a nice carved out little shaded area for people to sit in. And there she was, the nurse, smoking. Does that ever like throw you off? I'm always weirded out by the health workers that are smoking. I mean, I know smoking's a hard thing. If you're a smoker in here, I pray you get you know, free of that. It's bad for you. You know that, right? It's on the box. But, uh, um, but I was kind of taken aback by that. But then immediately I thought, oh, no. I mean, she was 15 feet from the best burp I've ever had. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I got to you know, kick into my you know, uh, 
politeness and stuff. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm just getting ready to say, oh, I'm so sorry, excuse me, I didn't know you were there. And she cuts me off with this. She's dangling the cigarette from her hand. <laughs> nice one. She's just clapping. I'm like, all right. That worked out. I said, excuse me, have a nice day. We both laughed. I went on, hung out with Tobin and Amanda. But that's how human life is governed. We've got these spaces, these locations, these situations where we act accordingly. But your church, which even by saying that, can I just say this real quick? We call this the church, it's a building. Everybody gets that, right? This is a room. Do you wanna know what the church is? Look around, everybody look around. You're the church. So when you say you're going to church, Kinda, but I would tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have received by faith what he alone can give, salvation from sins, given to us because of his work on the cross, his death for ours, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're the church. And wherever you go, that's church. Are you with me? Sometimes even preachers could get up here and start you know, giving these wrong ideas, these uh, affirming these preconserved notions, these ideas that at church I do church, in the rest of my life I do the rest of my life, when I'm alone I do the alone things, I have all these compartments, all these places, but what the, the Bible speaks to over and over again is that it's not just about the me and it's not just about the we, there is a he, a God who created all things. And the God who creates all things goes everywhere. Does everybody get that? It tells us in Psalm 139 that there is nowhere that we can escape the presence of God. Where can I go that you are not, the psalmist asks. The answer is rhetorical, no place. He is everywhere, therefore, get this, everything in your life is spiritual. Everything that happens is a spiritual opportunity to worship God. So when you're driving, that is an opportunity to honor God or not. It is not your little compartment to do with as you please. When you go to your home and you uh, love or not love your spouse, lord over your kids, and you think, that's okay, this is my house. They're, they're related to me. They have to put up with this. And you don't make the leap. The, you don't get to the understanding that this is spiritual. That God intends for me to act a certain way in my marriage. He intends for me to act a certain way in my parenting. That it's not just I clean up and smile up when I get to church and the spiritual stuff happens there for the hour that I'm hanging out. It goes with me wherever I am because God is wherever I am. Therefore, everything that I do, every situation, every location is spiritual. Put another way, when we're doing me, oh! When we're doing me, what we're really doing is he me. Yeah, stay with me. Oh, he me. And when we're doing we, I'm there, even if I'm not. And the life that I live with people is not a, a we or a me we, it's a he we. Is everybody picking up what I'm putting down? This is the part that I didn't know if it was going to work. And so this is the life that we live. The me and the we disappearing into our mission, into our, 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 
our desire to make much of him, of he, and to honor him with this life. You say, what's that got to do with the woman at the well? Well, we're going to see it kind of unfold here in the next few verses because we're going to watch two very different reactions to this one situation. And we're going to find that uh, just as is the case in our world today, it was the case then that far too many marvel and far too few move. If you're taking notes today, that's the first thing I want you to remember. When it comes to God being everywhere and him prompting us and leading us to the things that are next in his mission in life, far too many of us just sit there and wonder, what's, it, what is, what's going on? What's this all about? This doesn't fit in my box. This, this doesn't match with my preconceived notions of how God should work. And so we miss it initially, perhaps, where others who are more spiritually attuned sense right away that, look at what God is doing. Look at how he wants me to come alongside him and be involved in his work. You'll see what I mean. Let's read. Verse 27. Woman's leaving. And just then, it says, his disciples come back. They marveled. Uh, that he was talking with a woman. Uh, like I told you earlier, that he wasn't supposed to be uh, in conversation with any Samaritan, male or female. The fact that she was a female, like double foul, you know, uh, four minutes in the penalty box as opposed to two. Go Bolts, by the way, Stanley Cup. <laughs> they marveled at what he, uh, that he was talking with a woman, and, but, but no one had the guts. These guys are starting to figure out, this guy's different. He's turned water into wine. He kind of wrecked the temple. Remember that, fellas? Uh, he's meeting with Pharisees. That's chapter 3 and talking to them in the middle of the night. Uh, stands to reason that he's doing something here. But in their minds, they're like, this doesn't match up. No one's going to say it out loud because no one said, what do you seek and why are you talking with her? We got all these questions. But they were... Uh, and, oh, let's give them a break. They, they had been at Jersey Mike's. They, they, they hadn't seen everything that had gone on. But their initial reaction to these things were governed by their history, their expectations. Compare that with the woman's reaction. And of course, she's just understood that she's met the Messiah. She's, she's amazed that the Son of God, the Messiah, would take the time to talk to her. She knows who she is. She understands now who he is. This is blowing her mind. Blowing her mind so much that what's it say? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. I've hammered on this since I've preached this passage, you know, all these years. Everybody gets that that's like a huge deal. That's like leaving your wallet somewhere. Or, or, and, and, and it's even huger than that. You don't drink that day except that you get it from the well and put it in the jar and take it back to your house. This isn't just the inconvenience of leaving something that's kind of important. This is like mission crucial. But she is so wiped out by her interaction with the Messiah, she just forgets her jar. And she heads back to town and she says to the people, which don't, don't miss that, who has she been trying to avoid by coming out to this well at high noon? People! All of a sudden, you know, uh, leave me alone, uh, you know, Lacey is chatty Kathy. She wants to talk to people. And she goes to people who probably did not want to talk to her married five times and sleeping with someone who's not her husband. 
And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did, hyperbole. She's saying, you got to see this guy. And then she asks the all-important question, could he be the Christ? And she's, listen, that's all we got from John. She asked the questions. But I'm thinking, she's grabbing robes. Anybody been in that situation? you got to see this. And someone grabs you by the shirt collar. Okay, I guess we're going to see that. And she's hauling people, and she's making such a fuss that the people are like, well, I don't, we got to go check this out. And they walk out in the desert at noon to see the dude that she met, which goes against all kinds of common sense. Is anybody grateful that the story of Scripture is filled with people who function contra common sense? Because this is what faith requires of us. Everybody gets that, right? I'm not saying that faith works completely outside of common sense. It's, it's not some kind of you know, uh, mystical, unreasonable, you know, entirely unreasonable experience. But faith on occasion, probably more than we think, requires us to set aside all of these norms and all of these expectations and questions and just go. That's why if you get to Hebrews 11, it tells the stories of the people who just went. Noah builds a boat in a desert. He had to get outside some of his questions. Doesn't rain here, Lord. Okay, we'll build the boat. It'll take me years, but I'll build it. Abraham, yes, Lord. We just met, but here's what I need you to do. Move. You're going to go from where you live in the southern tip of Iraq, and you're going to head over to Israel. It's going to take months, if not you know, a year. It's going to be a long time. I want you to move. And by the way, you can't look at the property. We didn't post it on Zillow. There'll be no contract to sign. Uh, you're going by yourself, essentially. No army will be provided you so that you can, you know, uh, rest control from those who are there already. Just go. And Abraham has some bad moments, but Abraham in this moment says, right on, let's go. And heads across the desert to a promised land. David, full of faith, having experienced the grace of God as a shepherd, comes to a battlefield, there's a huge dude mocking an entire army, and no one will walk out and fight him. Saul, who is king principally because he's heads and shoulders above everybody else, he's not going out there to fight this guy. And you know the story of David. If God is for me, who can be against me? Let's do this. I got five rocks and a piece of leather. What could go wrong? Faith steps outside of convention. And those who experience these incredible um, things in life, these, these faith events, they've been like this woman. They've forsaken everything else that matters and in those moments just trusted and gone. Oh, church, listen. My hope for us this, uh, this morning is just two things. The first one uh, is this, that we would make God's mission our most satisfying meal. Look what it says next. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So Jesus is in, you know, uh, the aftermath of, of his experience of sharing his gospel with this woman. She's gone into town. She's, you know, uh, 
talking and, and, and drumming up this interest so that everybody else will come out to Jesus. Uh, and, and these guys just got the subs. They're just like, here, Jesus, we walked all the way in town back out here. Here's yours. Extra mustard. Yeah, here you go. And, and, uh, and, and they say, eat. We got this for you. But Jesus says to them, no thanks. Okay, in your preconceived, this is how this should go box, the disciples are like, what? We walked all the way in town to get you this thing. You better eat it. But Jesus says, no, I'm full. He says in verse 32, he says, says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. He's saying, I've already had the most satisfying meal that exists on earth. I've been about the Lord's will and done the Lord's work. Jesus is, uh, as a man, well-versed in this kind of mentality. Uh, He he might even be thinking about that day where he was at his most hungriest. Somebody know when that day was? He got baptized, it tells us in the other Gospels in Matthew chapter 3. And then in Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert. uh, Kind of like he is right now by this well. Except he hasn't eaten or been able to, you know, uh, take, take a meal for 40 days. 40 days. 40 minutes? I'm, I'm starting to waver a little bit. Are you with me? But 40 days. He's hungry. And so no wonder when his adversary, Satan, comes to him to begin his temptations, he starts with food. And when you remember what he says to him? Hey, you're the son of God. Just make those rocks into some focaccia. You know, just feed yourself. You have the power. You created all this stuff. Just alter the molecules. Make yourself some bread. You remember what Jesus said? This is so fraught with meaning, especially when you look at it through the lens of this story here in the book of John and this Samaritan woman. The tempter came to him and said in verse, in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 4, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. He's going to quote Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The only food, natural food, bread, is not the only thing that sustains the human existence. In fact, it's not even meant to be the principal thing. Sure, we all got to eat, enjoy your lunch today, right? But for those of us who understand that everything is spiritual, that God is always at work around us, we understand that what really propels us and fuels us in life is the work that he has given us. Jesus says, hey, man, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, you've got to know the context of some of the things that you read in the New Testament, things that are quoted from the Old Testament to really pick up on what it's trying to say in Deuteronomy chapter 8, this book called Deuteronomy is actually second law, and it's this reiteration of all the laws that were given to Israel in, in Leviticus. It starts with kind of a history lesson. It talks about, for the first six chapters of Deuteronomy, this, this great you know, um, thing that God has done in, in taking Israel from Egypt into the promised land. And the writer of Deuteronomy says, don't ever forget that. In fact, I want you to always remember, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that man does not live by bread alone. What he's referring to is the manna, this daily bread that came to Israel in the wilderness. It was God's bread. Couldn't get it, you know, down at the Wonder, you know, uh, uh, factory store. 
It was God's bread. It rained from the heavens. It only lasted for one day. But it was his sustenance. And so as Israel is entering its next season, as it's conquered its land, as it's moving towards uh, what the land of milk and honey has to offer it, uh, God, through the writer of Deuteronomy, Moses says, hey, guys, don't forget that you don't live by earthly bread alone. That what God has to give you, his purposes for your life, the things that he's calling to you, these things are your primary fuel. That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I used to think that was actually like, you know, a French loaf. Give me what I physically need for the day. And certainly it contains that, but it goes back again to this idea of the manna. Help me to remember that I alone, or excuse me, you alone are the sustainer of my life, whether it's through physical bread or through the things that you give me in this uh, everything is spiritual existence with you. You're the fuel. The disciples aren't picking up what Jesus is putting down. Verse 33 says, so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought them something to eat? Someone slipped by here? Was there like a food truck? We didn't, you know, clock on the way into town. Someone brought this guy a taco. I, I'm facetious, sorry. I'm having fun, I hope you are too. Are you awake? Is anybody here? So Jesus says to them, you guys aren't getting this. Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Oh, that I had time to talk about all this, but can I just cover this real quick? There's a specific will that God has for your life. We talked about it last week, in fact, from Hebrews chapter 12. It says that we should run with perseverance, the race that's marked out for us. I told you it's not the same race. Your race, Dan, is different than my race. And Robert, your race is different from my race. And Bernie, your race is different from my race. And I could keep saying names, but everybody gets what I'm saying, right? And so the things that God has called you to, the specific will, that he has for your life, you need to be faithful to him in and prepared to sense his leading so that you can be used of him in this everything is spiritual world that we live in and accomplish like Jesus did here in Samaria where he has no business being except that God prompts him to go, where he has no business talking to this woman except that God prompts him to talk. You need to be ready like he is so that you can be used by him in a world that desperately needs him. Are you with me? So that's the specific will. But then there's this general will of God, which again, don't have time. But the general will of God is that God expects certain things from all of us, no matter what our race takes us to. So he wants us to be saved. If you're here this morning and you haven't been saved by his grace, that's step one. Be freed from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Be saved to an eternity with him. But then once you're saved, now we're on to sanctification. Now we're on to submission. Now we're on to being spirit-filled. These are all general things that he hopes for all of us. So that as we're going, here, here's, here, I'll just put it this way. If you're doing life without Jesus, you haven't found your spiritual shoes yet. Can we just kind of go there? You're just kind of walking around. Your feet are uncovered. Your, your sins are unforgiven. And then all of a sudden, whatever day it was for you, for me it was as a little kid at a Christian camp, uh, someone explained the gospel to me, and that was the first time that in belief I received what Jesus had to give. Some of you came later in life, but if you're a Christian, you got your shoes. But here's the deal. That's the beginning of the general will of God for you. There's more to that general will that God has for you. First starts with being saved, moves on to being sanctified, and eventually it ends with us being glorified. Amen? But as we're moving through this life, in this general will that God has for us, the path is different for every one of us. And so my path's going to take me over here. 
and your path might take you over here. And you might live in Brandon for these next couple years, but you might move and end up over here. But you take the general will of God into the specific will of God, and you serve him there. Don't miss that. Don't let your preconceived notions and ideas keep you from that. The last thing is this. Make God's mission your most pressing matter. I'm just going to read some verses because we're going to run out of time. Happens every week. But here's what you're going to read in these uh, verses. The mission is a team sport. Isn't this great? Look around. These are your teammates. These are the people who are link, linking arms, even if they're not like always submitting to that, but they are meant to uh, link arms with you in the mission that God has for us as his church. My son Ben uh, is a huge cook. Uh, a few days ago, probably a week or so ago, he mixed up a batch of cookies. He, he took that cookie and chilled it in the fridge and then went to work. And we found it, and I was like, hey, Ben, can I bake your cookies? He's like, yeah, man, that'd be great. So he made them, I baked them, we all ate them, right? That's a team approach to cookie consumption, people. And there's a team approach to the mission that God has us on. Look at what it says in verse 35. It says, do you, do you not say, this is apparently an idiom, a saying from the day, that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Jesus says this as he's talking to them about this meal that is most satisfying to him, the, the being on, on, on mission for God, doing his will and doing his work. He says, Here, here's our next job, our next task. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. You've probably heard this before. But most scholars think that Jesus isn't looking out over our actual field that's ready to be harvested. He's looking out at these Samaritans who are being, who are being dragged from Sychar by the woman. And he's seeing their white robes. And he says, look, guys, there's the harvest. Here they come. A bunch of dirty, no good Samaritans. But how great is it we're here and we get to share this good news with them that they so desperately need. Then he goes into this reap so stuff. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice. All right, let's just go to this story. Who's the sower? If the harvest are these Samaritans in their white robes walking out to Jesus, who sowed the seeds? One Jesus certainly wasn't the disciples. They don't even want to be there. Who's the sower? The crazy chick from the well. She went into town and she's like, you guys, you got to come see. I mean, she's just tossing seeds. She's like, you got to come see this guy. And they're all like, all right. And off they went. And there's Jesus and his disciples benefiting from the work of the sower, the woman. And he's like, hey, fellas, reap on. Go cut you down some harvest. Share the good news. It's a team effort. Verse 37, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. She did the sowing. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I love the stories of people's journeys to Christ because it's almost always dotted with a bunch of people who are tossing seeds. My buddy TJ will be here next service. He'll sit right there because he can't pay attention unless he's in the front row. He'll tell you that. But he came to Christ 17 years ago when I came to church here. I, I met him as the Red Sox were playing the Yankees in 2004. For those of you not remembering, that was when they were down 3-0 and they came back and won that series four to three and went on to win their first World Series in 86 years, just saying. Anyway, <laughs> I get invited to this 
uh, watch party uh, by uh, a couple in our church who are neighbors with TJ and uh, his wife, Elizabeth. And he's a huge Yankees fan, comes in all bedecked in the Yankees gear. So I already don't like him. <laughs> but we sit there and we just get talking. And we realize we've got a lot of stuff in common. We're immediately friends. He starts uh, coming to our life group. Eventually, longer story shorter, he prays to receive Christ in the dining room that we rented for a year before we moved into our house here. What a, I mean, what an incredible thing. He's a life group leader. He's actively involved in so many ministries around here. He loves his wife. He loves his kids. He loves the Lord. He's living for him. And after six or eight months of living here, I got to go across the finish line with this guy. But let me tell you, I was not the first to sow. His wife had been praying for him for years. His kids got involved in lambkins. And so he was around all these people from Bay Life Church who loved Jesus and kept loving him. He moved in next to somebody from our church. He was surrounded by Jesus and these people who just kept popping seeds to the point where eventually some pastor Yahoo moves into town and meets him, mocks him mercilessly for liking the Yankees, and still somehow we made it through all that. Now he's my brother in Christ forever. And that's how this works. It's a team makes the mission happen. Look what it says in verse 39, that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of whose testimony? The woman's. It started with her sowing. Jesus and the disciples reading. If we had time, I'd go on to read. He stayed there for a couple days. That wasn't on the agenda. So let me close by saying this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to consider very carefully how much you are ruled by your schedule. How much the rigor of your preconceived notions uh, limits you in your pursuit of Christ. Jesus, prompted by the Father, heads to Samaria, probably hearing it from his buddies, but nonetheless he goes. Jesus, prompted by his father, steps over the social expectations of Jews not talking to Samaritans, of men not talking to women. And because he's responding to the leading of God the Father, he's able to be instrumental, not in just the salvation of this one woman, but God through this one woman brings the whole town, and many of them come to know Jesus. Jesus is not just our, our um, savior. He's not just our uh, sustainer in life. He's our template for life. And so as we are on this mission with him and for him, we need to act like him and be untethered by the stuff that we think is so important, the schedules that we just allow to rule us. My mom always said this about ministry. It's going to happen in the cracks, Mark. It's going to happen when you least expect it in the places that you least expect it to happen in with the people that you would prefer not to happen with. But you just need to be ready. Certainly it can happen at a church service. Let's keep hanging out. Let's keep growing. But God is going to take you, his church, to a world that desperately needs him. Will you be able to sense his leading? Will you be willing to follow him in faith? Last story. My son Ben isn't following Jesus right now. He's been living in uh, Jacksonville for almost seven years. 
during that time, we've had many uh, tough th- conversations. It's hard as a father who loves his son to see him not following the God I love. I've been angry. I've been discouraged. But as I've walked through the ups and downs of this thing, I've understood, okay, God, your time, not mine. You're bigger than Ben and anybody else that you love who doesn't follow Jesus yet. I can trust them with you. So I'm just going to pray. Here's what I'm going to principally pray. I'm going to pray, first and foremost, that Ben meets some Christians in this godless existence of his over in Jacksonville. I know they're there, a couple of them at least. I pray he meets them and they start interacting with them. Ben decided uh, that he was done with Jacksonville. That was another prayer. Have him move home. But he says, I'm moving home. I want to go back to school. I want to study to be a heart cath tech. I want to do all these other things that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, can I stay at your house? Okay, here's my preconceived notion. When you're 18, you know, as a, as a father, I'm supposed to break your plate. You're not supposed to, you're, you're supposed to be autonomous. You're supposed to live on your own. And so my son's 26, and he says, can you come live home? And I'm like, oh, it's a bad idea. I mean, I don't want to stunt his development. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to stand in the way of him becoming his own man. And then God comes to me and he says, hey, Bozo, you've been praying that this kid would be around Christians. Aren't you and Eleanor Christians? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. And so maybe we can work a deal to where he stays with us. And we get to love our son. And we get to laugh and joke and walk through some, you know, minefield conversations, but be around each other and see the love of God work through this time so that by his grace, he'll turn his heart back to him. Are you with me? That was not on the schedule. That was not my first idea. But if that's God's idea, let's go. So here's what I'm saying to you if you're not picking up what I'm putting down. God is everywhere. Everything is spiritual. In our hearts, we need to understand that what he has, his work and his will for us, that's our most satisfying meal. Let's not be caught up in all the other food that this world has to give us. Let's be seeking him, honoring him, prepared to move as he leads us to move. Let's make his mission a matter of our highest priorities. Let's make our lives about him. And listen, he's not going to call you to be a monk somewhere. Some of you, you know, I'm going to have to be a missionary now. Thanks a lot, Mark, for preaching this message. Here's the deal. You are a missionary now. You should be living holy like a monk lives. You're the church, not this room, not this building. And God wants to use you in his world. Be ready. Be ready. Can I pray for us? God, by your grace, we are grateful to be able to read your word, to see the example of your son, who was a man just like us, who struggled with self and seeking self, but who perfectly executed the life that you want us all to live. May he be our template. When it comes to the people in our world that are the Samaritans that we'd rather not hang out with, when it comes to the, the situations and the lo- locations that we'd ne- rather not be in, may we see you and your plan and seek to love as you love. May we be your mouthpiece. May we be 
the ones that you use to feed the hungry, to, to give water to the thirsty, to give shelter to the homeless. But more than that, would you use us, God, to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring redemption to the unredeemed. May you inspire us. May we have the awe of the woman at the well that you would have anything to do with us. And from that awe, would we move forward in the mission that you give us. Help us to be the church, not just in this room, not just at this time, but always, everywhere. For your glory's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be ready. It's coming this week. I just preached it. I'm not kidding. Be ready. God bless you as you go.